Amen. You may be seated. And as you are seated, please uh, turn in your Bible to the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew, in light of Christmas being less than a week ago, less than a week away. Um, it hasn't passed, in case you've not done with your shopping. Um, uh, in light of Christmas just being a few days away, I wanted to especially look at uh, Jesus' family tree. If you are here with us last week, you would have seen us go through one genealogy. In a couple weeks, we're going to go through another genealogy. So I thought, what the heck, let's just do three of them. So, but there's a lot to learn in them if you were here last week, and we'll see that again today. Matthew chapter 1, we'll look at verses 1 through 17. But, you know, as you think about times that you have looked for help, uh, you want to know that the person you're reaching out to the person that you're uh, drawing, that, that you're bringing into your life can actually help you. And that's why many times a search for help often begins by looking at somebody's qualifications. Whether we're looking for a doctor, uh, whether we're considering who to vote for, hiring of an employee, someone to manage our finances, someone to build a house, someone to teach us at school, you know, we look at qualifications. What are the qualifications that help, is going to help uh, that this person is actually going to be able to help me. We can ask what school they go to, what degrees do they have, what experience do they have, do they have a pattern of success leading up to this? Now, we might ask that same question spiritually with all the religions of the world. What is it about the Christian faith that compels us to believe? Well, well, that goes back to Jesus, who he is and what he did. His coming to the earth, his perfect life, his death, resurrection, his ascension, uh, the Christmas message announces that he was sent to be Savior of the world. But what qualifies him to be the Savior? Can we just say anyone is a, a, a Savior? Can we just pick extraordinary people and call them a Savior? Or is there something different about Jesus that uniquely qualifies him to be called Savior? Well, I think the whole Bible addresses that. But as we look even at what we're going to see as a genealogy, a list of names... We see it, it even addresses that. It even addresses the qualifications for Jesus. Now, a list of names like this might seem irrelevant to us as we look at the Christmas story or maybe even a frightfully dull topic to talk about the Sunday before Christmas. But maybe it's more important than we like to think. You remember that the people who wrote the Gospels, they didn't have uh, pads of paper laying around um, in order to write down anything they wanted. They wrote down something in account for Jesus' life, they would have thought that it had some significance. We want to look at that. In the ancient world, uh, genealogies like this would establish legitimacy. In fact, it would show who has a right to be a leader. Now, the gospel according to Matthew, which we're looking at today, in Matthew 1, it was originally written to explain Jesus to a Jewish audience. And, and the Jewish leaders of the day, when the people as well, would have been interested to know what qualified Jesus to be this Savior that was being talked about? That's where Matthew's going. How, do, how does he prove that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus the Messiah? And he wanted to show that Jesus is this Savior, the Christ, the Messiah, for the whole world. Not just for the Jewish people, but for the whole world. And that's why he writes this genealogy. And so as we look at it, we're going to see him, him add in some non-traditional components. We're going to see not just great names in the list, not just a who's who of Israel's history, 
but we see scoundrels and sinners, men and women broken by sin, whose story's been redeemed by God's grace. It's an honest list. But it shows something. It shows us something that, that even those without power can find hope. Jesus is a savior anyone can find hope in. And that's why this genealogy is, is important. It's interesting. And so let's look at this. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. We'll see some of these things that qualify Jesus as savior. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliad, and Eliad, the father of Eleazar. And Eliezer, the father of Matan. And Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon, to Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of God. May add his blessing to the reading of it. You may be seated. And would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, many of us need hope. We all do. We all need a hope that's going to sustain us through the ups and downs of life. Father, the trials that, we'll, that we're facing and will face. And God, we know that that is in Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. And so, Father, as we look at these things, help us to see him, not only Savior to the world, but our Savior. And so that, Father, in knowing that and in believing that, that we might have that hope and that peace. God, that, 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 that our hearts long for, but God, that reconciliation with you that you call us to. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we want to look at three things in this that qualifies Jesus as Savior. And the first thing we want to see is how Jesus fulfills God's promises. Verse 1 kind of gives us an overview of the whole genealogy. And we see three important names here. We see Jesus Christ mentioned, we see David mentioned, and lastly, we see the name of Abraham. And the next 15 verses kind of fill in all the gaps between those names. And the verse 17 kind of gives a, a conclusion. But these three names are very important. And they're important to show that Jesus is in the line of God's great plans, his great promises, and his great purposes. He's in the line of God's great plans, his great promises, and his, his greatest purposes. We can look at this name, Abraham. 
You know, way back in ancient history, before the nation of Israel even existed, God chose Abraham to be a blessing to the world. We can see that in Genesis chapter 12, thousands of years before uh, Jesus came. In Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, we see the Lord speaking to Abraham. Actually, it says it spoke to Abram. That was his name before, is Abraham. And he says this to him. He says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, if you don't know the story of Abraham, the big summary is that he was the forefather of this nation of Israel. So I said he was the forefather even to Jesus Christ. And if you look at Genesis 12, you see that, that God is choosing him to accomplish his purposes in this world. He, he chooses Abraham, and he chooses his descendants after him. And he says in the passage in front of us that he's going to bring blessing into the world. It was a time of chaos. It was a time of confusion. And he chose this one family to bring good news into the world. So we might ask, how will God bless the families of the world through Abraham? Well, that's where Matthew 1 comes in, right? The blessings of God come through Abraham's descendants, and ultimately it comes in sending Jesus Christ. Through him that we can know God. We can know the forgiveness of sins. We can find the power to change and the newness of life. Jesus would bring God back to us, right? And Abraham and his descendants, they had snippets of that. They'd communicate snippets of that through the ages, but ultimately... To be seen in Jesus. God's great promise that was given to Abraham came through Christ. So that's the first name, the name of Abraham. Another name is important there. It's the name of David. If you know the name of David, you'll remember that David was of Israel's greatest kings. He was the greatest king. In fact, he was the marker of which all other kings of this nation were measured against. And by showing that Jesus is a descendant of David, he shows that Jesus is of royal descent. This is a genealogy of, of kings. And it really starts from the very first names. It starts with even the name of Judah. If you're looking in your text, you can see that in verse 2, his name is mentioned. Thousands of years before Jesus was born, it was said about Judah in Genesis 49.10, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So what it's saying here is that among all this nation of Israel, that the tribe of Judah would provide this kind of leadership to God's people. It would go on forever. And you can see this as the genealogy goes on. Um, it shows David is one of the descendants of, of Judah. Um, and then his son Solomon becomes king. And so down, all the way down to Joseph, Jesus' father. And we see Jesus being born to Joseph. Well, not he was um, adopted into Joseph's family. And we know that Jesus was born of a virgin. He has no um, biological human uh, father. You know, but in Joseph adopting him into his family, brings him into this family uh, line. This human body that Jesus had was a, was a miracle from God. Um, but, you know, we see in that um, adoption, his being, being brought into, into this kingly line, this royal genealogy. And it helps us to answer another important question. One of the questions that people have as they look in the Bible is they say, well, why, is, why do we have two different genealogies? Why do they look so different? Matthew chapter 1, 
and Luke chapter 3. And if you would flip over and bounce back and forth between them, you'd see a lot of names that are similar between Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3. But, you know, you might wonder, well, why, why are there different names? Aren't we talking about the same person? You know, wouldn't the same person have one genealogy? Um, is, and some people would say that this is a contradiction um, in the Bible. The skeptics really point to that. You know, scholars will look at this and they answer them by showing that, that Matthew 1 is the genealogy of Joseph. It's a royal genealogy. It's the genealogy of the, of the kings of Israel, the rightful kings down uh, through the ages. It's not necessarily a genetic genealogy, but it shows us who's next in the ruler of the line of Israel. And Jesus is included in this in his adoption um, to Mary's husband, Joseph. But if you look at Luke chapter 3, and we don't have time to look at it in depth right now, but you'll see the genealogy of Mary. That's that genetic line of Jesus. If you're going to look at it, you know, we see again he's the descendant of King David, you know, making uh, Jesus a legitimate descendant of the great king, you know. And so we see important things in this, like this is real history. Uh, and Mary, Joseph, and Jesus were part of, a, part of this kingly line. Now God, in um, speaking to David, you know, getting back to David and this name in the line, uh, God had made him a promise long ago that he'd always have a son as a king of Israel. So during King David's life, which is hundreds of years uh, before Jesus was born, God made a promise. We see that in 2 Samuel 7. And the promise was this, is that David would always have a king on the throne. God speaks to David, and at the end of this, he says in verse 16, he said, in your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's, forever is a long time. That's the word that God includes there. It's so long that no person can do that. And, you know, we all die. You know, no one can have a throne that lasts forever, but Jesus would do it. He's the king who would come into the world. He was a crucified king, and as such, he would rise again from the dead, and he'd be able to live forever, sitting at God's right hand. He was the king who could, live, who could uh, rule forever because he's the king who will live forever as the resurrected one at God's right hand. So it's kind of a quick overview of those two men's lives. But what's important for Matthew mentioning that is he's showing that Jesus fulfills ancient prophecies which have been spoken about Abraham and David. So one of the important things is we, that we think about at Christmas time. You know, we know that the story of Christmas is the fulfillment of many prophecies. We know one's about being born in Bethlehem. We know one's about being born to a virgin. But what about one's about being a king forever and ever? One's about being a blessing to the nations. You know, these are some of the prophecies we also see fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. You know, these prophecies are some of the, the, the most important and powerful evidences for the Christian faith and seeing Jesus as the Savior. You know, here you have this historic event, you know, something that is grounded in, in history. You know, again, real genealogy for real people. And so we're reminded that, that the Christian story is not just a fairy tale. It's not just a chance to offer moral platitudes or to, to delight in the birth of a little baby. But it is something that happened in history. It's especially important as our nation loses its um, understanding of the historic meaning of Christmas. You know, we see his birth, this arrival of this king, the fulfillment of God's uh, prophetic promises 
as the real reason in Christmas. But there's, there's more as we think about Jesus in fulfilling these, as it's seen in uh, Jesus fulfilling the role of a king. What do kings do? Kings conquer, kings protect. And we see in the life of Jesus, his conquering of sin, his conquering of death, his conquering of sa- Satan, and of gathering of people and protect them. He's a king who can set things right. And this is how he, he wins our hearts. He wins over people with his love. You know, people love their kings. They love their rulers. My, my, my mother was raised in England, and she occasionally speaks about being there for the, the crowning of Queen Elizabeth. And, you know, she talks about the time that, that her dad dragged her hours before Queen Elizabeth was going to go down the streets and dragging her down there amidst um, all these people just waiting for it to happen. And she waited forever and ever and ever. And as a little girl, she wasn't too happy about it um, because she had to wait forever. But now, you know, she, th- she sees it and she says, well, I was, I was there. I was glad to do it. Just get a glimpse of the queen going by. You know, the British love their, their queen. People love their kings and queens. And people love Jesus as Jesus is king, especially when they realize his love, his glory, his use of power for their good. When people see this, I mean, they, they swear allegiance to them. They take up their cross and they follow him because they say, I've never been loved as I've been loved by Jesus Christ, this great king, this great king who fulfills these prophecies and these promises. You know, do you know that love? Do you know that power? Embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your King of your life. So the second thing we want to see, see today is how Jesus redeems our broken past. How Jesus redeems our broken past. And we, really, we see this in verse 2, going all the way through verse 16, in the way that Jesus redeems broken pasts. There's a list of names that are here. And well, it seems maybe like a pretty ordinary genealogy, as far as we might know, genealogies, is that there's a few interesting things that we need to pay special attention to. You know, one of the things that stands out in this particular genealogy is the mention of five women. Another one is, you know, the way that this group grouped up into, into three different sections of before King David, after King David, and then after a deportation when the people had um, been held captive and taken out of their land. Now, particularly focusing on the first, the five women, you know, we recognize that most ancient genealogies wouldn't include women. And it's significant that these five women are included in the story of Jesus. Not only are they women who are mentioned here, which is significant, uh, but as we look at their stories, we can also see how the brokenness and the fallenness of this world are incorporated into Jesus' own family tree. And what we see is how God can redeem and restore broken lives and broken people, broken stories. He can use all of our stories, not just the pretty ones, not just the, not just the easy ones. Now, we need to remember, I'm going to highlight these five stories, but before I do, you know, we need to remember that there is no one perfect in this genealogy except for Jesus Christ at the end, Right? In fact, you know, even the first name that's mentioned there, Abraham. You know, we know of Abraham's lives that put the lives of many at risk. You know, we know Jacob was a giant liar and deceiver, and Judah sold his own brother into slavery. Uh, David was a polygamist. Solomon worshipped false gods, as did many of his descendants after him. Each one of the names that are here are affected with sin. And these are the ones that Jesus is descended from. You know, pick a perfect line 
of perfect people. I mean, that wasn't even a possibility to get a perfect line of perfect people. All people have sinned. The Bible says all have fallen short of the glory of, of, of God. It's not even possible to find a line of people who didn't have stories like this. You know, we, we all have families that are like this. You know, we may have that, that relative, that person in our own line who has a notorious path, past. Jesus didn't avoid families like that. But it also shows that as being part of a family like this, he's able to be a savior who redeems sin and redeems stories. He's a savior who is like us in every way except for sin. So I want to look at the stories, especially these five women, because they highlight certain things. It's like he pauses to, to make sure we see something as he writes that. The, the first one is mentioned in verse 3, and she's Tamar, first of the five women who's mentioned. We read that Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Might sound innocent enough, but if you were to flip back to Genesis 38, you'd be like, this is not an innocent story. In fact, it's really one of the most uh, wretched stories in the Bible. It's just one of those hard ones even to read. You know, you could read the uh, sinful hypocrisy of a man named Judah. You could see, the, you know, the um, desperate condition of this woman, Tamar. Um, I mean, you, you see both of those. And, you know, just a short abbreviation of the story, uh, Tamar is a widow. She's the daughter-in-law of Judah at the time. They always have a kid together. Um, she's a widow. She's the daughter-in-law of Judah. Uh, she's in a bad spot. She dresses up like a prostitute. And um, things happen, and uh, she ends up together with Judah, uh, parenting, uh, becoming pregnant by Judah, becoming pregnant by Judah. Now, now Judah, um, you know, he's supposed to be one of the upstanding citizens of his land, and he sees that his daughter-in-law, this widow, is, is pregnant. He knows his son has died, and so how did she become pregnant? And so she's held up there to be um, judged guilty and, and, and to be punished, to be killed for her uh, for her improper relations, right? Well, apparently, you know, as time goes on, it's discovered that he's the father. You know, he's, he's, he's not paying attention to his own immoralities, of his own misuse of the people around him, his own abuse of people. And when that's exposed as the father of the baby, you know, he allows her to live and she ends up giving birth to twins. You know, it's one of those stories that really shows the brokenness of our world, that out of a sense of necessity that this woman, Tamar, would make uh, desperate decisions and that Judah would take advantage of them. And we still see that God redeems her story. And she and her baby, Perez, are part of this line of Jesus. The second story is mentioned in verse 5 with a reference to Rahab. If you remember back to the book of Joshua, chapter 2, you remember that Rahab was a prostitute from the city of Jericho. Israel was looking to conquer the city of Jericho. And, and she, she, she saw that the Lord was with the people of Israel, that the Lord was with them. And she hid the spies on her roof. And because of her trust um, in the Lord, her support of these spies is that she alone, to, together with her family, were allowed to live after the siege of Jericho. And she became part of this nation. So again, for her. You know, though there was this life of prostitution because of her faith in the Lord, that God was pleased to include her in the story of Jesus and include her name in this genealogy. He redeemed her story. You might also know the story of Ruth. Ruth is also mentioned in verse 5. Now, Ruth, she did not have the same kind of story as, as the previous two, but her story is one of, of tragedy um, until it was again redeemed by God's grace. You can read about it in the book of Ruth. 
Uh, like Rahab, uh, Ruth was a foreigner to the people of Israel. Uh, she was from the land of Moab. She married a man from Israel, and he died. And um, she joined together with her mother-in-law and moved back into the land of Israel. Um, her mother-in-law also had a, um, her husband also died. So there was a lot of death that was going on there, and they moved back together to the land of Israel. And she said that she was going to make um, her mother-in-law's God her own God. And so by faith, what does she do? She enters into this strange land. Uh, she faithfully worships. She works. And she joined this community of Israel. And so you have this tragic story this here of this foreigner. His mercy. He brought um, this man Boaz into her life. She marries him. They have a child who God included in the line of Jesus. Again, a redeemed story. The fourth woman who's mentioned here isn't even given a name. But she's known by her story. Everyone who would read this genealogy would know her name. But it's as if Matthew leaves her name out just to show how bad that situation was. If you look down at verse 6, we read that David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. If you want to know where that story is listed, it's in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11. And her name, of course, was Bathsheba, right? And you'll remember how King David saw her bathing on the roof of her house. And overcome with his own lust, he brings her into his home. He has relations with her and she becomes pregnant because she was married to a man named Uriah. David has Uriah killed before making Bathsheba one of his many wives. Now, this baby that she had with David was, was lost to miscarriage, but later on they would have a son named Solomon who would become one of the great kings of Israel. God redeems her story and her and includes her in the genealogy of Jesus. And the fifth name that we see, the fifth woman that we see named here is the woman Mary. Mary, this young virgin who trusted faithfully in the Lord, who received this gift of God and said, let it be according to God's will. Now, you know, she had not done anything wrong or impure, but many would have wondered if maybe something had happened. Maybe she was as scandalous as the other women. But, you know, we remember the very promises of God which were given to her is that um, the Holy Spirit would overshadow her and she would uh, conceive and give birth to a son. You have this young woman who trusted in the Lord. Now, at this time of this, when this genealogy was written, uh, women wouldn't have even been trusted enough to act as witnesses in a trial. And here they all testify to something very important. They all testify the grace and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, four women had lives that were shattered with the brokenness of this world. And three women were involved in some of the most challenging stories of sin inside of the Bible. And so why does Matthew include them here? What does this mean to us? You know, I think that if we understand this and why Matthew would write about this, we'd find a lot of encouragement it's written to encourage us, especially when we would think that we wouldn't belong, that we wouldn't belong inside of God's story. It makes us think that maybe I can have a part in Jesus' story. If they did, maybe I can too. It's written to encourage us in the scope of God's grace, that the people he includes in the stories that he redeems. You know, we see that, first of all, that God is pleased to invite both men and women into his kingdom. We might not think much of this today, but in the ancient world where women were treated as second-class citizens, it's significant that God would include men and women in this genealogy. They are part of Jesus' life. And Jesus was glad to have them as part of his heritage. 
by naming these women. God reminds us that Jesus is a savior who came from us, but he came for us, came for all of us. Second of all, we also see that God was pleased to invite people from all nations. These are not all Jewish people. Reminded that Ruth and Rahab, both foreigners, and yet God was pleased to have them as part of Jesus's line. It's a reminder to us that, that Jesus is a savior for all people, for all nations. And third, we see how God is pleased to use and even redeem the most broken stories, the most broken people for his own purposes of grace. In the end, Tamar isn't ultimately known for her sin. She's known for the fact she's part of Jesus's genealogy. Rahab isn't known for her prostitution, but her faith, her inclusion in the nation of Israel and having a child in the line of Jesus. Ruth isn't known by the tragedy in her life as much as her faith, her worship, who are being brought in to the line of the Savior. Same thing with Bathsheba. Same thing with every sinful male name that is on the list. All these names have new meaning as they are connected to Christ by faith. You see, these stories were changed. They were renamed. They were wrapped up in God's plan of salvation. And so we can understand them differently now. I was thinking about Star Wars when I was thinking about this. I think, well, why Star Wars? You know, I grew up watching Star Wars 4 through 6, right? 4 through 6. And if you watch Star Wars 4 through 6, it's all about Luke Skywalker, right? And so it's all about Luke Skywalker. And you think, wow, so Luke is what this whole story is about. And then they made Star Wars 1 through 3. And that's all about somebody else, about Anakin. I think, oh, well, maybe... Maybe I misunderstood 4 through 6. Maybe 4 through 6 is about the redemption of, of Anakin Skywalker, this, this Darth Vader who's going to, um, you know, eventually see that he's gone the wrong way. And, and so it's, it's kind of like that, that, you know, we see, you know, these stories, we read them in the New Testament, but when we see them in light of what God has done in the New Testament, we understand them differently. We understand them as part of God's plan of salvation. Helps us see the whole thing that God's doing as being different. With your past with my past, that if we're in Jesus Christ, we, we, you know, we look at those and we recognize that God is rewriting our history. He's not changing our past. He's connecting it with you know, God's purposes, with something good, God's plan for the future. Instead of being angry, instead of being lustful, instead of being bitter, instead of being an idolater, instead of being a gossip, our lives become defined as being loved in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those old things are put away and there's a new identity that is given. There's a new direction that's given. We get a new name as, as one who's been beloved. That's something we need to think about a lot. You know, who am I in Jesus Christ? How do you think of your story? Are you stuck in a mistake in your past? Are you defined by what someone else has done to you? Have you gotten fixated on your sins, your problems, your failures? Or is your story defined by what Jesus has done? And so Jesus, I think, kind of twists the question. Instead of always just asking, is Jesus qualified to be the Savior? It really seems to be adjusted to ask the question of, can Jesus help us? Can Jesus help me, even when he knows what I've done? You know, you know Matthew was one of these kind of outcasts in his own day. Matthew, is the one who wrote this, was a tax collector. He probably had a lot of money, but he was rejected by his own people. He was rejected by his own community. As a tax collector, he was someone who would be working for the enemy of occupiers of his nation. He was working for the Roman government. He was seen as a traitor. 
as betrayer of his people. He was on the outside of that community. And so he was rejected. And maybe Matthew had the same feeling that many of us have, the feeling that I've done so much bad or that you know, my life is such that God couldn't possibly love me. It's the feeling that I've sinned so greatly that I can't be forgiven. It's the feeling that my mistakes are so great that it's inevitable that I would have a bad life. What we have recorded in this genealogy shows that outcasts, even like Matthew, can find acceptance. And so if you thought that God can't use you, God can't accomplish purposes, his purposes through you, we're reminded of how God redeems, how God wraps up into his plans. All the stories of those who come to him by faith. He takes broken, pained, and sordid stories, and he writes a new ending that redefines our understanding of the whole thing. So Jesus redeems our stories. The third thing we want to see, especially in verse 17, is how Jesus gives us rest from our weariness. Look at verse 17, it says this. It says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, as Matthew writes this, he's using a technique that shows something important about Jesus. He's hinting about something. Now, first of all, he's chosen certain names to talk about and other names not to talk about. Anyone who'd read this genealogy, even in the first century, would recognize it. You know, he strategically left certain names out. And he also strategically included some names. That's why these names that were in there of these five women are important. He wants to show that Jesus is king. He wants to show that Jesus fulfills his promises, that Jesus redeems these stories. But he also gives a hint that Jesus can give us rest, something he'll go back to the rest of his book. Now, if you understand anything about the use of numbers inside of the Bible, uh, you'll know that the number seven uh, represents a perfect, um, represents perfection, uh, completion. Uh, God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he, he rested, right? Seven days is a day of rest. It's a day of gladness. It's a day that we can rest from our works, that we can remember that we're saved by grace. We can remember the work of Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at the math here in Matthew 1, 17. Now, this is easy math. You should be able to handle this. You should be able to follow through. But, you know, if you look at the time between Abraham and David, you'll see he mentions what? 14 generations, right? There's two sets of seven. Seven generations and seven generations, okay? So I've following with me so far? All right, the next thing he goes on to say is there's another 14 generations between David and the deportation of Babylon. So you got two more sevens, right? So how many do we have now? Four. All right, we have four. All right, and then he goes on to say from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, how, how long? 14 generations, right? Two more sevens. And so now we're up to six. All right, very good. All right, and what's next? Jesus is next. You know, you see Matthew putting in here, there's these six groups of seven. And we wonder, well, what's the seventh seven? You know, what's, the, what's the, the perfect on the perfect? And that's Jesus. He is a seventh seven that's given. And by identifying Jesus as that seventh seven, the Bible points to him as our ultimate rest. You know, in the Bible, there's something called the Jubilee. You know, it happened every 50th year in the nation of Israel. After seven groups of seven years, in that 50th year, that was a special celebration. In the Jubilee year, all debts would be forgiven. The Israelite slaves would be set free. The Israelite people would be able to experience the liberty of the Lord and the freedom that was secured for them 
and their salvation from Egypt. We can read about it in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 8 through 12. But it speaks about that 50th year as being a year of jubilee for them. It was a time of forgiveness of debt, of freedom from slavery. As Michael Card sings about it, he says, Jubilee, Jubilee, Jesus is that Jubilee. Debts forgiven, slaves set free, Jesus is our Jubilee. That's the point that Matthew wants us to see is that Jesus leads us into that freedom. Jesus leads us into that perfect rest. Jesus leads us to forgiveness. Jesus leads us to freedom. Jesus leads us to that jubilee. Jesus talks about himself in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16. We read this, it says, He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom... He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And Jesus fulfills scripture. Good news, sight, liberty, freedom from oppression, the year of the Lord's favor, that is what he has brought among us. And as Revelation eleven fifteen says, that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. You won't find joy in God's promises any other way. Sometimes people think, if I work hard enough, I'll get what I've always wanted. If I work hard enough to be a good person, then I'll know peace and freedom. You know, that doesn't work. We enter God's rest by faith, by faith in Jesus Christ. We know peace. Peace comes by faith. We know freedom, freedom by faith, because it comes as a gift that comes through Jesus Christ. That's what Matthew wants us to see. We try to work for it. We try to accomplish it in our own efforts with, apart from faith. We wonder if we've ever done enough. We wonder if we ever be good enough. We can never really know. But Jesus is the genuine path to peace. He invites it to us by faith. If you look at Matthew 11, 28 through 30, he tells us to come to him and we'll find peace. You won't find it if you come to him. Look at Matthew 11 where Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Are you trying to prove yourself? Have you tried out sin and found that it leaves you exhausted? Jesus offers you himself. Go to him for life. Go through him for life. What Jesus did was to live a perfect life, to die upon a cross and to rise from the dead so that you could be free from the guilt of your sin. He did it so you could be reconciled to God, to have a personal relationship with God. He did it so you could fulfill God's purposes in your life, to do the things he's called you to do, to know him, to love him, and to know, and, and then to love others. Now once you know the freedom that comes through faith in Jesus, then you're free to be what God created you to be, free from the control of guilt, free from the control of sin, free to really know and experience joy and peace and love and faith. 
but you follow him to get there. Remember, he's at the end. He's at the end of that line. Have you followed him? Have you taken that path? If you look in your bulletin, uh, we, you know, we have uh, an invitation there to something called Christianity Explored. Christianity Explored is a class that we have which looks at the life of Jesus, looks at what makes him a perfect Savior. What, what, what is it that qualified him? And as, as you say, you know, I want to know more about Jesus. I want to know more about the, the joy, the peace, the life that he gives. You know, our invitation is to participate in that class. It starts on January 11th. We'd love to have you to be a part of it. You can communicate to us in that little form that's in your bulletin if you'd like to, to, to join with us in that. But that is Jesus's God's Christmas gift to the world. What a gift that we would know. Rest that comes in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Jesus is a perfect Savior. We see it in his birth. We see it in his miracles. We see it in his death, his resurrection, his ascension. God, we even see it in his family tree. We thank you, God, for sending him to show us your love, to show us your power over sin. God, to bring us close to you again. Father, you show us that no matter how bad our past may look, that, God, you offer new life in Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, for that wonderful gift. God, I pray for those who are here today who feel far from you. God, comfort their hearts with the nearness of Jesus. Help them to reach out to him, to receive him, to believe him, and know the joy he brings. God, we thank you that he's close, close for all of us to receive. And we pray this all in his name. Amen. Well, let's stand together and let's sing hymn.